Attention, everyone. Hello, and welcome to our seventh, sort of, Kaiju Cast Commentary. Consider this an entry into a brand new category entitled Kaiju Guest Commentaries. This commentary features Stuart Galbraith IV, the author of Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, and Steve Rifle, author of Japan's favorite Monstar. And it was originally recorded for Media Blaster's Godzilla vs. Megalon DVD and Blu-ray release. Unfortunately, these releases were sort of shunted by Toho. The powers that be there didn't approve them, and so the commentary that you're about to hear was sort of uh, unavailable through mainstream channels. However, because I'm a resourceful kaiju fan, this commentary has become available on back road channels through the internet, I guess you could maybe say. So we may or may not be posting this with permission. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But we will see what happens there. Now, if you're watching Media Blaster's DVD or Blu-ray release, you'll want to pause the movie just before the Toho logo appears. And now you'll want to sync that up to this commentary when Megalon roars. Hello and welcome to the audio commentary track for Godzilla vs. Megalon, Gojira Tai Meguro, the lucky 13th entry in Toho's Enduring Film Series. I'm Stuart Galbraith, and across the ocean from me is Steve Rifle, author of The Indispensable, Japan's Favorite Monstar, the unauthorized biography of the Big G, as well as an upcoming uh, biography of the director Ishiro Honda. And we're recording this commentary on October 19th of 2011. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, and you are in Kyoto, Japan. And, Stuart, I'd like to introduce you by uh, mentioning that you are the author of The Emperor and the Wolf, The Lives and Films of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mufune, and the likewise uh, indispensable Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, uh, perhaps the finest book ever written on this genre. And we'd like to acknowledge right up front that Godzilla vs. Megalon, uh, affectionately known by some as Godzilla vs. the Stock Footage, is widely regarded as one of the worst movies of all time, and certainly one of the worst of the Godzilla movies, but we're not here to ridicule it. That's already been done. Instead, we want to try to tell the story behind the film because it occupies a rather unique historical place. Because even though it's considered terrible, it was very successful when it was released in the United States and received relatively massive exposure in 1976 and 77 and because of that it's arguable this film is largely responsible for inspiring a new wave of Godzilla fandom among all those kids who saw it and for simultaneously cementing Godzilla's reputation among the critics uh, as a cheesy and campy character. Well, you know, it, it certainly has none of the weight of the original 1954 film, nor the craftsmanship of, say, 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, or even the goofy ambitions of Smog Monster. And yet, one of the things about this movie is that it has a, a charm all its own. And I think it's also very important, right up front, to say that uh, this is not an adult movie that is childish, but rather a movie specifically made and from the very beginning made for children. One other point I'd like to make is that uh, what's been very interesting uh, researching this particular title is that while on one hand there have been tons of Godzilla books and articles published in Japan as well as in the United States, there's actually very little discussion about this uh, film specifically. 
the original filmmakers and the original actors tend to talk about the the 70s period in the general sense the lack of time and money and the use of stock footage and so forth but very very little about the movie itself uh, for example, when I contacted the actor Yutaka Hayashi, who plays Hiroshi in this movie, but otherwise did no other Godzilla films, he said something rather amazing. In the 37 years since its release, no one, not in Japan, not in America, had ever even asked him for an interview to talk about this movie. And he's one of the stars of the picture. Gojidatai Megaro was released in Japanese cinemas on March 17th of 1973 by Toho Eizo, which was a subsidiary that uh, Toho was producing and distributing films under during that period. The screenplay, such as, as it is, is attributed to Jun Fukuda, the director, and based upon a story by the fine screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa, who wrote many of the best uh, Toho science fiction films of the 60s. Other than Fukuda and Sekizawa and producer Tomoyuki Tanaka, none of the principal players of this uh, production are holdovers from the heyday of the Godzilla series of the 60s, and there are, are none of the classic actors like Hiroshi Koizumi or Akihiko Hirata, not even in the smaller parts, uh, as was the case with the previous two films. And this is also the first Godzilla film made after the retirement of Haruo Nakajima, who had played Godzilla almost exclusively since the original film in 1954. For all of those reasons and many others, this film just feels and looks different from what had come before. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, there's kind of a depressing side even of, of watching this movie because uh, if, if you look, at, look around, all the grass is brown, the hills are brown, the streets are empty. There's something really kind of bleak and it's, it's like the last man on earth kind of story. Well, that's interesting uh, because it was actually shot in the winter time. It was shot in the winter, yeah. And here... It, here in the opening scene, you have these guys, uh, you know, the, the, the kid is in the lake, and the guys are drinking their, uh, their Fanta on the side, and you can see their breath. Yes, you can. And, and Katsuhiko Sasaki, in his commentary, uh, he mentioned they were just, they're freezing their butts off, so uh, Fukuda, the director, gave uh, the two leading men a shot of whiskey to warm them up. Well, I hope they gave a shot of whiskey to the kid, because the kid if, is out there in the water, and if you look closely, you can see his feet are getting totally soaked. Uh, I want to talk about the origins of this film, which go back to sometime the previous year of 1972. Uh, at that time, there was an afternoon show for kids on TV Asahi called Katsura Kokinji's Afternoon Show. And during the kaiju craze of the early 70s, this show would often feature monsters and henshin heroes as guests. And according to a Japanese blog we found called Fantasy FX Aficionado Club, Toho and Seibu, the big Japanese conglomerate that owns department stores and railways and whatnot, co-sponsored a monster design contest for kids, and the winner of this contest was announced on this TV show. So one afternoon, the kids who had submitted designs to the contest were invited onto the program to show their work, and at the end of that episode, the winner was announced, and the, the winning monster was called Red Aron. And then a monster suit based on the winning design was brought out to show the kid. The boy who won was really excited, but when they brought out the costume, he had a, a WTF moment because the costume didn't really look like his design, and the boy's, the boy's version of Red Aron was actually white, but the costume that they created for it was red, blue, and yellow. So this blogger remembers the show's host trying to console the little kid who was visibly upset. So on this show, it was announced that Red Aron would appear in a Godzilla movie. Uh, subsequently, Red Aron was used for publicity appearances at events sponsored by Cebu. 
Uh, Toho subsequently changed Red Aron's name to Jet Jaguar and had special effects director Teruyoshi Nakano supervise the redesign of it. And the, this blogger says that the only elements carried over from the Red Aron that was seen on this children's show to Jet Jaguar were the colors. The head was totally different, and Red Aron actually had wings. Uh, we also found a Japanese website called Cyber Kids 1954, which is a kind of a repository of information on unmade Toho sci fi projects. And this website、uh, reports that there were three early screenplay drafts for this film. In fact, they have the covers of two of them.、Uh, they were written by Shinichi Sekizawa, and these drafts went under the titles Godzilla vs. the Megalon Brothers, the Undersea Kingdom's Annihilation Strategy,、uh, which was completed in September of 72. A second draft called Insect Monster Megalon vs. Godzilla, the Undersea Kingdom's Annihilation Strategy,、uh, was apparently turned in on September 5 of 72, and a third draft was completed. Completed on September 27 of 72. It's not clear whether these were complete screenplays or just treatments, which seems more likely.、Uh, we want to acknowledge our friend John Cassidy, who found this website. I'm also using John's translation of the titles of those scripts. On the Japanese DVD for this film, there's an interview with Teruyoshi Nakano. And he says that Godzilla vs. Megalon was a replacement project for another film that was cancelled at the last minute, though he doesn't say what that project was. So there's a lot of intriguing clues about this film's early development,、uh, which apparently dragged on for some time, and by the time it was green lighted, there wasn't a lot of time to complete the film in time for the Champion Matsuri, the Champion Festival, in March of 1973, which is what this film was released under. Well, this film is certainly unusual in, in more ways than one. I, for, for starters, you Have the fact that Godzilla is almost a, a kind of supporting player in his own movie. Jet Jaguar, meanwhile, is, is built up、uh, as, as a star in the making、uh, kind of thing. And yet, I, I find it really curious that his, as big a part as Jet Jaguar has in this film, his name isn't in the title. I mean, you, you have things like、uh, Godzilla, Ebira, Mothra, Big Duel in the South Seas, and pictures like that where they incorporate the, the monsters' names in the title, but not here. You just have Godzilla versus Megalon, and yet Jet Jaguar is really the star of the picture. Well, I wanted to say, you and I interviewed、uh, Teriyoshi Nakano in Tokyo in January of 1996. I wanted to read a quote from his interview because he kind of touches on these things.、Uh, he said, quote, I remember it was a very short shoot, probably about three weeks. The movie seemed to take forever to develop, and then it went into production without enough preparation. There was no time to ask Mr. Sekizawa to write the script, so he kind of thought up the general story, and director Fukuda wrote the screenplay, which was completed right before the camera started rolling. In this movie, we couldn't help but focus on the new character, Jet Jaguar, so Godzilla was kind of a sidekick. There were complaints that Godzilla didn't appear in enough scenes. We couldn't deny feeling a faded enthusiasm towards Godzilla in this film. end quote. He kind of said that faded enthusiasm stemmed from the way Godzilla was being portrayed on screen at this time, and we've heard that several times from people who've worked on these films, primarily from the effects crew members, that as the studio brass pushed the Godzilla series in a more childish direction, for commercial reasons, the crew became disheartened because they took their work seriously, and this is the most childish Godzilla film of all. You can see that in the, the live action direction as well. I'm actually a big fan of. Uh, Jun Fukuda, as a, as a director, particularly of his, his spy films and his crime films and that kind of thing, as well as his two 60s Godzilla films, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster and Son of Godzilla. And the direction in this 
is at a much lower level, I think, than even uh, 1974's Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, which has a lot of energy. I mean, it's the same director, but it it almost looks like uh, you know the, the work of two different filmmakers. The nuclear test at the beginning of the film seems to be a reference to Kanakin, which was the code name for the explosion of a five megaton hydrogen bomb at Amchitka in the Aleutian Islands chain of Alaska in November 1971. It was the largest underground nuclear test ever performed by the United States, and Greenpeace was actually founded as a protest group that tried to stop this test. Uh, scientists had predicted that the test was so big it would cause tsunamis and earthquakes and other disasters, much like what you see here in the movie, but ultimately those things didn't happen. So it's kind of interesting that like the original Gojira, which uh, was inspired by a nuclear incident and was very much a protest film, this film is also inspired by a real-life nuclear explosion. But the similarities kind of stop there. In fact, I would argue that in this film, Godzilla is actually fighting in favor of nuclear testing because if you really think about it, the Cetopians and Megalon are the good guys. They're acting in self-defense in retaliation against a nuclear strike on their country. And Godzilla, by defeating Megalon, is ensuring that the tests can continue. Well, you know, the Japanese film industry was pretty much in the toilet when this was in production. Uh, Daie, once home to Gamera and Zatoichi, among others, had gone bankrupt, while Nikatsu, the home studio of Yujiro Ishihara, to say nothing of Gappa, the trifibian monster, had switched to softcore Roman porno. Toho, in order to survive, had to regroup and reorganize. Consider this. In August 1965, Toho had 203 actors under exclusive contracts, and that's not counting Toho's television and stage divisions, though obviously there was some overlap. So they went from 203 in August 1965. By June 1972, there were just 11 actors still under contract. Uh, It's a really curious mix of talent, incidentally. You have uh, people who were... Uh, big stars like Yuzo Kayama and Keiju Kobayashi, and then uh, older actors who were probably just uh, you know burning through the rest of a long-term contract like Minoru Takada. And uh, but then you have some you know curious people on this list like uh, Akira Kubo and Kenji Sahara, who, uh, much as we uh, like them, were not really big stars uh, at this time at all. And Katsuhiko Sasaki, so that explains why he's in the movie. Uh, And in fact, when we interviewed Mr. Sasaki, he said that around this, I'm quoting here, around this time, Toho had been making around 30 to 40 movies a year, but then suddenly dropped to around 10 movies a year. Everyone was worried about the future of the film industry, and all over, customers were watching TV instead. Also, beginning with Godzilla vs. Gigan, Toho began producing some of its films under the new banner uh, Steve mentioned earlier, Toho Eizo, which was created specifically to reduce costs and weaken the influence of the labor unions that had been blamed, at least by the management, for driving up production costs. Special effects supervisor Teriyoshi Nakano told us recently, quote, With the streamlining of the company, each department was made to be independently accountable for its own profitability. Because of this, Toho Eizo took the core of the special effects department and built it into a company that would serve not only theatrical films, but all other visual productions as well, unquote. 
What that seems to mean is that if Toho Ezo got behind a hugely profitable film like 1973's Submersion of Japan, the unit would be healthy and well-funded, but if the film was not a success, the effects unit took the blame. What it also meant was that instead of a regular staff, Toho was hiring people on a project-by-project basis as needed, in other words. That said, Mr. Nakano tells us that while there were about 70 people on Eiji Tsuburaya's effects staffs during the 1950s and 60s, uh, he does say about the same number of people were employed to work on this film. Well, now we're in uh, Goro's only in the 70s bachelor pad, complete with impractical hanging cubes. I mean, wouldn't you get pretty sick of bumping into it in the middle of the night on your way to the toilet? As well as, uh, you know, like really strange uh, hungry tiger paintings on the walls and the sort of Ikea lamps. And and don't miss the uh, Jet Jaguar color scheme painted on the walls. Uh, this and Seatopia are the two sets that were constructed for this film. Everything else appears to be shot on location. Uh, the exterior of this house was a, a real house, uh, a location. Uh, it was near Toho, and it belonged to an artist, and uh, Teriyoshi Nakano spotted it. Uh, there are some funky paintings on the exterior, and you'll see them when Jet Jaguar walks outside. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, when I interviewed Sasaki, I asked him about that, and he said that uh, fairly close to Toho, there was a stretch of land where on one side it was flat and undeveloped, and then there was the sort of uh, hills uh, to which houses were you know, built into the, the, into the hillside. And uh, that all of those houses were kind of very um, modern and expensive looking and futuristic. And uh, so that's kind of why they, they settled on that particular location. Okay, well, I have a few more statistics. In, 19, uh, in 1960, Toho released 78 features. In 1968, the year of Destroy All Monsters, just 47. And in 1973, Toho released 36 new feature films. So that's about half of what they were doing uh, a dozen years before. Uh, and yet, even among those 36, only about half of those could be considered in-house productions. Uh, for instance, when, Ta- when uh, Daiei went bankrupt, uh, Shintaro Katsu moved his production company to Toho, and uh, for them was producing things like Zatoichi, Hanzo the Razor, and the Lone Wolf and Cub movies that Toho merely distributed. Uh, it's really quite amazing. Except for Godzilla and a smattering of salaryman comedies, Toho had pretty much lost its corporate identity. Uh, it's still right there, right up until about the end of 1971, but right around January 1972, thereabouts, uh, Toho had been completely re- completely restructured. So, uh, going back to what you said earlier, Steve, the whole identity of Toho had sort of changed, and uh, b- besides the actors uh, that had disappeared and the, the staff, uh, all of those series films, not just uh, Godzilla continued, but the Shacho film series, the Ekimai series, uh, the International Secret Police series, all of those came to an end uh, by about 1971. Well, not only did the studio's identity change, but Godzilla in this period was very different from the monster that uh, arrived in 54 and even from the monster of the 1960s. He was now a superhero living on Monster Island in the South Pacific, not the monster land of Destroy All Monsters, which was a prison, 
but instead, this is apparently an island where the monsters don't bother anyone, and nobody bothers them, and they're free to come and go as they please. And so whenever aliens or a, some other monster threatens Japan, Godzilla comes forth like a giant watchdog to chase the intruder off the property. This is actually the third Godzilla film that features a small child as one of the main characters, and the relationship between the two adults and the boy is worth mentioning because four years earlier, in, in 1969, Ishiro Honda had directed Godzilla's Revenge, a.k.a. All Monsters Attack, which was about a little boy who's lonely because his parents work long hours, so he dreams of going to an imaginary monster island. This movie is actually, you could see it as a continuation of that theme in a way. My friend and colleague Akemi Tosto, who grew up in Japan in the 70s, recognized this fictional family structure immediately when she saw this film. She says that because Japanese fathers typically spend so much time away from home due to their work, a common children's fantasy in stories back then was to have a big brother who would always be around to play with and help raise you. And what better than to have a big brother who invents a remote-controlled robot that grows to gigantic size? Well, and also I'd like to, I'd like to just uh, interject here, which is that in Japan it's not at all uncommon for the father to live in another city you know, hundreds of miles away. And he, he lives and he works and he comes back home maybe once every three or four months to visit the kids for a couple of days, and that's it. That's not, not uh, uncommon at all. The lead Cetopian agent, who's kind of the main villain in this film with the long hair and the nice clothing and the ascot around his neck, he reminds me a little bit of Roman Polanski during that period. That is the, the late actor Kotaro Tomita, who played a lot of supporting roles in films and television shows from the 1950s until the 1980s. He was born in 1925 and would have been about 48 when this film was made. And according to his bio in Japanese sources, he specialized in playing gentlemen characters and villains. He died in 2004 at age 79, and as far as special effects films go, he had a minor part in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster and a role as a government official in Terror of Mechagodzilla, but that's really just a tiny sample of his long resume. You know, Steve, one of the weird things looking at these Cetopian scenes is that uh, it it's comparatively lavish, and yet you hardly see the set. It's like it's there, and then whoosh, it's gone, and you never see it again. It's a, obviously a big set. In fact, I think it was really the only set, uh, live-action set, that they built for the movie. All the other stuff, other than the interior of uh, Goro's house, it's all location. His royal hairiness, Antonio, the tattooed emperor of Cetopia is played by the one and only Robert Dunham, who was a big part of the community of Americans and other foreigners who appeared as actors in Japanese movies during the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, Dunham first went to Japan during the Korean War when he was in the Marines, and he decided to stay on after the conflict ended. He started acting in an amateur troupe, uh, the Tokyo International Players, and from there he hooked up with the Kokusai Agency, which represented so many of the, the foreign non-actors who were in films in those days. Uh, his biggest role, at least as far as uh, science fiction films is concerned, is as the diamond broker in Dogura the Space Monster, and he's also in Mothra and the Green Slime, and a bunch of non-genre pictures. He sometimes used the stage name Dan Yuma. And, and a very impassioned performance there by Robert Dunham. 
And unfortunately, as as often happened to him, uh, his voice was dubbed over even in the uh, in the Japanese version. I I think he's speaking English here. You can if you read his lips. Well, I I just remember when I when I interviewed him, he was like, "That's not my voice. I just want to make clear." <laughs> you know, he's really good in in Dogura. By the way, he gives a really good performance. I I think that the character is written and directed intentionally to be rather comical. This this foreigner who is strangely very Japanese and it is sort of befuddling everybody, you know. Well, that that actually uh, ties in with something that I wanted to mention. Um, Dunham was a very ambitious guy. Ac- acting was actually just one of many things that he did. He was a businessman and a published author. And in fact, one of his books, The Art of Being Japanese, was published by Tuttle in 1964, which would have been right around the time of Dogra. And it's a really interesting book to look at today. It's uh, it's a satirical look at Japanese culture and customs through the eyes of a very judgmental and, by today's standards, politically incorrect foreign observer. There's a lot of talk about things like slanted eyes and other things that would be offensive now, but it's a great time capsule of Japan as experienced by an American in the booming days of the early 60s. Denham also raced cars and was a test driver for uh, Japanese automakers, and he was an independent filmmaker. He wrote and directed an unreleased sci-fi movie in the late 60s called The Time Travelers, which was a an invasion of the body snatchers type story set in Tokyo. And in that movie, a very, very young Linda Pearl played uh, Dunham's daughter. And he also did stunt work and stunt driving in a lot of films. Well, it's, I think it's important to point out, too. I mean, when he was here in the 1960s, J- Japan was a, a very exotic place back then. It was uh, pretty much inaccessible to all but the, the, the wealthiest people. Americans uh, to to go to Japan was almost like going to the moon back then. The world was uh, uh, not as small as it is today. So to to be this uh, foreigner living in Tokyo was was quite exotic. We, we both interviewed him for our respective projects, and um, in fact, he was one of the first people that I interviewed when I began uh, researching and writing about these movies, so I'm you know, forever grateful to him for helping me get started. And, and a uh, very nice guy, too. Very nice guy, yeah. And I got to meet him in person uh, in New York in the late 90s when he was there as the guest of honor at a convention, and he, he seemed really flattered to see all the fans turning out to meet him. I ended up having a few drinks with him, and he enjoyed a good cocktail. Um, he, he talks about... Um, you know his luck with the ladies. He dated a lot of his <laughs> his co-stars, including uh, the beautiful Akiko Wakabayashi and uh, Linda Miller from King Kong Escapes. In this film, uh, Dunham recalled that he got the part as Antonio through Johnny Youssef, who was an agent for a lot of the foreign actors and also acted in films himself. Uh, Dunham said that he had a brief meeting with director Fukuda about three days before they started filming and was cast on the spot, and then he went right to wardrobe to be fitted for the the toga and the the Megalon tiara. And he said he got a lot of kidding because of his outfit. He uh, he had to wear it in between takes, and while he was eating lunch in the studio commissary, everybody would would give him a little bit of hell about it. Um, 
I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. During the the you know the big chase scene where the Setopians are are chasing after Hiroshi, that's actually Robert Dunham riding the motorcycle right up to the end of the chase. Fortunately for him, on the day they were shooting that scene, he was committed to shoot a television commercial later in the day, so he left before they shot the end where the motorcycle rider gets uh, paint dumped all over him. That was a, a Japanese stuntman. Uh, not too long after Godzilla vs. Megalon, uh, Dunham and his family moved uh, back to the United States, and he eventually died in Florida in 2001 at age 70. Well, let me say a few words about the shaggy-haired, bearded henchman uh, here, whose name is Wolf Otsky. Uh, Adolf Hitler became president and chancellor of Nazi Germany on August 2nd, 1934. And 25 days later, also in Berlin, the actor known in the West as Wolf Otsky was born. Uh, his real name is Ulf, that's U-L-F, uh, Georgi Hemming. Uh, he had a Japanese pianist mother and a Swedish father, uh, his father being the son of white Russians who fled during the revolution. Uh, pretty weighty stuff for Godzilla vs. Megalon actor, you know? No kidding. He later took his mother's family name, Otsuki, because... Wolf sounds like wolf, and uh, Otsuki combined is sort of like uh, moon and wolf together. So it's sort of the name sort of stuck. Uh, his sister, a woman named Fujiko Hemming, uh, is like her mother, a pianist, and she became very famous here in Japan in recent years. And these days, uh, Wolf operates a kind of museum in her honor. Uh, Wolf's done lots of TV, but relatively few movies, uh, though you may have seen him in such things as Cary Grant's uh, last movie, Walk, Don't Run, uh, or maybe Juzo Itami's film Tampopo, in which he plays a doctor. Well, 25-year-old Yutaka Hayashi, who plays Hiroshi in this, uh, was an ex-drummer influenced uh, mostly by Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. He was born in Nagano Prefecture, and he was an original member of the group sounds band known as the Village Singers. Though not as famous as, say, the Tigers or the Spiders, the Village Singers nonetheless had several hit songs. When he was just 22 and she barely 18, Hayashi married the actress Etsuko Nami, who's probably best known for her leading role in Toshio Masuda's 1974 film Blood. Anyway, the Village Singers appeared in two 1969 Shochiku films, clips from which you can find on YouTube, incidentally. But after the band and his marriage broke up, Hayashi tried going at it alone, beginning in 1972 with the horror comedy The Ghostly Trip, which starred Frankie Sakai of Mothra fame. Uh, that was also another uh, Shochiku film. After Megalon, Hayashi appeared in a variety of roles, uh, playing villains, uh, troubled youths, sidekicks, that kind of thing. Uh, for a variety of studios, uh, and he also appeared in a number of Roman porno films over at Nikatsu. More recently, Hayashi has been uh, a voice actor in such films as uh, Rintaro's anime version of uh, Metropolis. Uh, he retired from show business for a while, uh, opening a nationally successful chain of live music houses known as Kentos, but then around 2001, the, the Village Singers reunited and he began performing again. Interestingly, Hayashi doesn't remember Megalon being cheap or rushed at all. Uh, quite the contrast uh, to Sasaki. He says, quote, I thought that films for children would be made uh, with a low budget and small crew, but I was greatly mistaken. There was plenty of enthusiasm on the set and a sufficient budget. 
That said, he admits director Fukuda gave him, quote, all kinds of freedom in performing. He was a very kind director, adding, I didn't have enough experience as an actor to adjust my performance to the audience, so I just basically played myself. I asked him if he had any message he'd like to convey to the film's American fans, and he says, quote, Being asked to do this interview after so many decades proves again just how amazing the popularity of Godzilla is. It's a film that my grandchildren are most proud that their grandfather was in. It's hard to imagine he's a grandfather now. He has a really interesting uh, background. Uh, when he was 15 years old, uh, he joined uh, a pretty well-known band called Keiichi Teramoto and Country Gentleman, which was one of the first Japanese artists to popularize American-style country music. And you mentioned his nightclub chain, Kento's. I found a review of Kento's on the New York Times travel website uh, from a few years ago. And apparently that uh, nightclub chain was credited with starting a whole revival of 1950s American uh, pop culture appreciation in Japan. So he's quite the entrepreneur. Auto racing had been growing in popularity in Japan uh, ever since the end of the war, and in 1963, the first Japanese Grand Prix was held. And Hiroshi is just one of many race car driver characters in Japanese pop culture from this period. In some of the scenes where he's driving, there are these close-up shots taken from underneath the steering wheel that look very similar to uh, almost identical shots from Speed Racer, which was uh, on television just a few years before this movie came out. And there also are similarities to a number of the Japanese superhero shows from this time. Uh, many of those characters uh, were either race car drivers or, or drove a, a cool car or a motorcycle. Yeah, uh, well, there's there's uh, lots of in influences, I think, in, in those car chases. Also, Grand Prix, the movie, the movie, the John Frankenheimer film, had been a huge, huge uh, success in in Japan. But more specifically, I, I also think that there may be a, a direct influence from the 1969 British film, The Italian Job, which mm. has a simil similarly comical tone uh, to the chase. And the other thing too is that the car chase in this, as uh, relatively tepid as as it is. I think uh, deserves credit for being something a little bit different. There really isn't uh, anything quite like that in the rest of the Godzilla series. And because roads uh, in Japan are generally not closed to film crews, car chases generally in Japanese films are, are relatively rare, uh, certainly compared to, to Hollywood films. A lot of that action and that element uh, comes from the direction of Jun Fukuda, who often would structure his films around a series of chases. So let's talk about Fukuda, who is a filmmaker about whom very little is known in the West. You interviewed him for your book, Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo. and. Uh, what was he like? It's, it's very interesting. When I first wrote to Mr. Fukuda and asked him for an interview, he replied, and, I, and I'm more or less quoting here, I think my movies are, are all terrible, but if you really want to talk about them with me, well, I guess I would be happy to talk about them. So, you know, it wasn't false modesty. He really thought the vast majority of his films were terrible. And while Megalon could hardly be considered a, a high watermark, I, I've always felt he was a, a vastly underrated director. One thing I always say is that in terms of the strictly the live-action first unit stuff from Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, it's it's like the one Godzilla movie that you could take Godzilla out of it and you'd still have a really good movie. When I first interviewed him, though, uh, we actually got into almost a kind of argument uh, with him telling me uh, how terrible his movies were and me has trying to insist, no, no, they're actually really good. You know, I really like them. Uh, so it was kind of a strange situation. 
Fukuda, you know, was also very different from Ishiro Honda in the sense that both of them started out making all different kinds of movies, but Honda got to be pigeonholed into making virtually nothing but special effects films from about 1960 onward. But Jun Fukuda, his case was was different. He made all kinds of movies for his entire career. As I mentioned earlier, he made really good crime films like The Merciless Trap, Witness Killed, The Weed of Crime, White Rose of Hong Kong, uh, as well as some, some good uh, spy pictures and war movies. Uh, to me, there's, there's a kind of cinematic injustice in the case of Jun Fukuda, uh, because he was making the same kinds of movies and at the same time and at the same level as directors at other studios like Seijun Suzuki and Kinji Fukasaku, who of course are, are now positively lionized by Sines today. But because the only Fukuda movies that were exported into the West have been his handful of sci-fi monster pictures, he's been, I think, rather unjustly ignored. By the end of my interview with him, he sort of begrudgingly admitted that, yes, some of his movies were actually pretty good. And interestingly enough, when uh, the BBC came to interview him uh, for a Godzilla documentary in 1998, Mr. Fukuda was really surprised by the respect that this BBC crew uh, showed him. And uh, he, he, was, he was kind of touched by that. Uh, quote, I had hated watching or hearing about those two movies, he's talking about Gigan and Megalon, but later I realized that they really are popular among children. When I was interviewed by the BBC too, the staff told me how much they liked them. I just don't get it. Recently I was watching a TV documentary on Godzilla, this was a, an NHK show called Gojira Umi no Wataru, uh, Godzilla Across the Sea. And there, were, there was my film in the U.S. video rental shops under the title Son of Godzilla. Kids over there apparently watch Godzilla on TV. At the time of The Mad Atlantic, uh, that was a Toshiro Mifune movie that uh, Fukuda directed in 1966, I was flying by myself from Madrid to Las Palmas, and an American father and his son, who was in elementary school, about the second grade, was sitting next to me. We were chatting, me with my few words of English, and in the course of talking, they asked, What movies have you directed? I thought that even if I listed a bunch of titles, they wouldn't know them, and it would be too much trouble, so I just said Godzilla. When I said that, the boy became extremely excited, and the father said, He's crazy about Godzilla. The boy reached into his bag and took out a bunch of Godzilla cards. Even today, I still get letters uh, from fans overseas. Godzilla's popularity is pretty amazing. And speaking of fan letters, I'd like to share one last personal anecdote. In March 1999, I had to call Mr. Fukuda about something. And when he came to the phone, he just sounded awful. He was struggling to speak, and he, was, uh, he just sounded terrible. And he explained that he was recovering, obviously not very well, from open-heart surgery. I later posted this news on the internet and offered to forward any get well cards that fans would care to send. And over the next week, I received a lot of cards for Mr. Fukuda. Uh, he was at this time uh, a widower, and I think he was really quite moved to discover that so many people thousands of miles away cared about him. He died less than two years uh, after that. But I think toward the end of his life, he was kind of reconciled that his movies really did have some value. Well, we're coming up on my favorite moment in the film when Megalon airmails our heroes over a mountain and they're none the worse for wear. Well, speaking of Megalon, I think further proof that you're watching a kid's movie is the design of Megalon itself, himself. Uh, you know, here in Japan, every summer, 
preschool and elementary school children hunt, collect, and keep uh, these things called kabuto mushi, which are the Japanese rhinoceros beetle. And these are actually very large uh, creatures, several inches in length, and they're quite uh, beautiful in a, in a weird sort of way. They're, they're graceful, and they're, they look like something from another world, and they were especially popular in Japan in the early 1970s. There was kind of a, a kabuto mushi boom the, the thing that's odd about the Megalon in the movie, the, 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 the Japanese beetle in the movie, is that he looks enough like a Japanese beetle that it's clearly a Japanese beetle. And yet at the same time, all of the grace and what's, what's really neat about Japanese beetles is totally absent in the suit design, which is so uh, baggy and, and clunky and uh, ungraceful. But I, but I think I think that it was really a missed opportunity here because you know these these beetles move in a in a very interesting particular way that I think if they had tried to do that in the movie it could have been very interesting and instead this thing is just you know yet another monster. Well, uh, as far as the design, uh, Nakano says that Megalon's face was modeled after the beetle. Uh, the body, he says, was uh, patterned after a cicada, another insect. And the movement, get this, is supposedly patterned after uh, the movement of grasshoppers. And he uh, further said that he wanted to design the monster originally based on a dragonfly and also considered a ladybug before he uh, settled on the beetle. The Megalon costume was actually the heaviest one that Toho had ever uh, created up to that point. And because of that, the scenes where the monster is sort of hopscotch jumping across the landscape and when it freaks out because its Jet Jaguar GPS has gone AWOL, those scenes were really difficult for the special effects crew. And Nakano says he got so frustrated that he almost decided to cut those scenes out of the, out of the movie. Uh, about a dozen crew members had to stand in the studio rafters and lift the stunt actor in the costume up and down to simulate the jumps. And it was very difficult for the actor in the suit to hear, so an assistant director would have to blow a whistle to let the actor know when it was time to jump and the wire technicians would, would raise and lower him. Well, there isn't much in the way of uh, miniature work in this film, which is usually a, a trademark of Toho science fiction films. Uh, Megalon's destruction of the dam is the one scene that involved building a significant new miniature set. Both director Nakano and members of the special effects art staff, which built the miniatures, decided that uh, with their smaller budget on this film, they would put their effort into making one really good miniature set as opposed to several lesser sets. And by this time, a special effects art director Yasuyuki Inoue, who had supervised the construction of uh, some of the best miniature sets at Toho during the 60s, he had left Toho and he was now replaced by his longtime protege, Toshiro Aoki. This miniature dam is modeled after the Ogouchi Dam at Lake Okotama, north of Tokyo, which was built in the 1950s to provide uh, water supply to the city of Tokyo. It's the same dam that's destroyed in Mothra in 1961. So this movie and the two Godzilla films that preceded it uh, all have, as we said, none of the old Toho guard in the cast. Uh, the star of this film is, as you mentioned, uh, Katsuhiko Sasaki playing Goro, the inventor. Uh, he was born in 1944 in Suginami, Tokyo, and he had graduated with an economics degree from Hodai University. He received his acting training at the famous Bungakuza acting studio, and he also spent time in a small theater group called the Rokugatsu Gekijo. 
Sasaki said that his father, who was the famous actor Minoru Chiaki, was totally against him becoming an actor and refused to help him get into the business. He believes the fact that he didn't share his dad's name and that he used his grandfather's name actually helped his career because there was no whiff of nepotism. Yeah, in fact, I mean, he kind of, you know, I had assumed that he, because of his connections, he kind of had a, a, an in at Toho. But no, that wasn't it at all. He he came through the uh, the theater, as you mentioned before, and uh, he got a, a small part in uh, to, to Whom Are You Loving, and then got a, a bigger part in a one of the last of the company president uh, comedies, uh, whose uh, the English title translates to First Decade Showa Company President versus Second Decade Showa Company President. <laughs> the producer, uh, Masami uh, Fujimoto, uh, liked his acting and kind of thought that Sasaki sort of resembled Keiju Kobayashi, who was one of Toho's biggest uh, comedy stars as, as well as a dramatic actor. And so he was uh, initially kind of groomed as the, the new Keiju Kobayashi. But now he is uh, very prolific uh, as a dubbing actor. Hmm. He dubs uh, American uh, TV shows like Lost and ER and uh, shows like that, CSI, and uh, as well as movies. Uh, he gives a couple of pretty funny little anecdotes about making this film. He, he remembered that Toho kept telling him not to gain any weight because they thought his face was considered uh, fuller or chubbier than, than other leading man actors of that time. So he had to, right, like his father. Yeah, he had to restrict his diet. And um, he also remembers that during the monster scenes, he was instructed to stare up into the sky as if he's looking uh, at a 50-meter-tall Godzilla. And after a few days of this, he started to suffer acute neck pain from, you know, co cocking his head upward so many t uh, for so many hours. And he had to be uh, given emergency acupuncture treatments before he could oh, come really? back to work. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, he told, he told me that he, he was actually quite happy to be a leading man in a Godzilla movie and, and that he was very excited about that. Conversely, he says, quote, talking about how bad the situation had become in terms of uh, budgets and schedules, at the time, they wrote down how many feet of film should be exposed for each shot, and we were expected to finish within that range. That's why we did everything in one take. There were no NG shots, no retakes at all. You know, one of the interesting things about Godzilla vs. Megalon is not only does this movie rely on stock footage, it relies on stock footage of stock footage. Because there are, are uh, scenes in this movie that use stock scenes cut together for use in Godzilla vs. Gigan, and it reuses the, the famous uh, Mazer cannons uh, shooting at the trees in, uh, from, from Gargantua's for the second time in a row, second movie in a row. Uh, the opening sequence with the nuclear explosion, that contains uh, old footage from uh, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster and Destroy All Monsters. Destroy All Monsters, yeah, all the mo almost all the Monster Island footage, right? with the exception of a couple shots of uh, the new Godzilla costume to kind of establish that, and then uh, Angulus. And then uh, Megalon's uh, city attack has footage from uh, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster, and, and if you're a fan, uh, you immediately notice that there are three rays striking the ground rather than one, which is all Megalon has. They reuse the scene from uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan, where uh, Gigan saws Godzilla's shoulder and blood spurts out, and 
kind of brazen to cop scenes from the most recent film in the series that and that just shows you how pressed for time and money this production was they used footage from so many different films it's kind of like a toho greatest hits reel uh nakano says he tried to make the old footage and the new footage match through uh you know lightning and darkening and the processing but it really doesn't work because uh the gigan footage for instance is is a night scene and this is uh, a day scene right and, and and nakano also told me recently that during the pre-production of the movie and presumably when fukuda was still writing the script he met with director fukuda and they sat down and they looked at all this stuff and decided ahead of time what have we got to work with? What can we build scenes around rather than the other way around? They didn't write everything out and say, okay, we're going to have this kind of scene. Oh, no, what are we going to do? They were writing it with the stock footage in mind from the very beginning, which, of course, you know, is is pretty restricting. Well, that's interesting, and that makes a lot of sense. I, I don't know if you recall, but when we interviewed Nakano, uh, you know, uh, 15 years ago, he tried to put a, a you know, a... a a positive spin on all of this. He he did admit that, you know, being forced to use so much stock footage was painful for him, but at the same time he said that he tried to do the best job that he could and that Toho had built up this this library of sorts of special effects scenes and that they were going to take advantage of that and, and use them to the to the best of their ability. Whatever happened to Hiroyuki Kawase, the child actor who plays Rokuro or Rokuchan, that seems to be the enduring mystery of this film. We tried to locate him for an interview or for comments. And in, and in fact, we asked absolutely everybody right. who we talked to. Uh, and we talked to a lot, of, a lot of the people associated with this picture, but uh, no one had any idea. Uh, none of the actors or members of the crew seem to know where he is today, and if Toho knows, they aren't telling. He seems to have made just four movies. He played the beggar's son in Akira Kurosawa's Dodeskaden. He's very good in that, has a big role. Uh, he has a small role in Kihachi Okamoto's film of the Battle of Okinawa, made the following year. Just one week after that film opened, Kawase starred as Ken Yano in Godzilla vs. Hedera. Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, that is. And then two years later, co-starred in this. Between gigs, Kawase was one of the stars of Open Sesame, the Japanese version of Sesame Street. Uh, he would have been about eight years old when he made this movie. According to the uh, Internet Movie Database, he was uh, born in 1964. As you mentioned, he was in Godzilla vs. Hedera, and I interviewed Yoshimitsu Bano, the director of that film, uh, a couple of years ago, and he told me that he felt Kawase was a really fine child actor, and in fact he was blown away by his ability, especially in the ADR session when they were re-looping some dialogue. Here's a question for you, Steve. Where are all the people? I mean, uh, around the eight-minute mark, the heroes were driving around the freeway, and yet there were no other cars on the road. And uh, now that we're in the toy shop, uh, there's nobody here. It's it's totally abandoned. It's it's, it's a, it gives the film a really strange quality. I think it's almost like uh, the the last man on earth or something. And incidentally, why go to all this trouble at the toy shop? Why not just throw a rock? But it makes Japan appear as you know like Saskatchewan or something. It's it's really really strange. There's no people and there's no women. There's no girls. It's the first and probably the only Godzilla film with no female characters in it. Uh, unless you count the Seatopian uh, lady with the medicated look on her face. 
You know, Steve, one of the complaints levied at the Godzilla movies of the 1970s is that they're so juvenile compared to the more sophisticated Godzilla pictures of the 1960s, and certainly light years uh, removed from the original 1954 film. The Godzilla movies from 1969 through 1975 were parts of a program specifically targeting children, the Toho Champion Matsuri. So during this time, the only adults that really went to see these pictures were parents accompanying their kids and hardcore otaku fans. These Champion Matsuri typically consisted of a big Toho special effects film, sometimes a new one like Space Amoeba or Godzilla vs. Hedera, uh, sometimes a reissue like King Kong vs. Godzilla. These were headlining a longer program that usually ran about three hours long and which typically included short cartoons and maybe a complete uh, episode of a TV show like Ultraman. Uh, their release in Japan was timed for those weeks when Japanese school children were on vacation, the New Year's holiday, the summer holiday, and most frequently in March. That's because in Japan the school year starts on April 1st, not early September as in most of America. The Toho Champion Matsuri program headlined by Godzilla vs. Megalon was especially interesting and even historically significant, though not because of Godzilla. Rather, because one of the cartoons on the same bill was a little movie entitled Panda Kopanda Amefuri Sakes no Maki. This was the second of two films known collectively in the U.S. as Panda Go Panda, and was important because it was an early collaboration of director Isao Takahata and screenwriter Hayao Miyazaki. Also on the program was a movie called Fly Out Youth, a melodrama about a boys' soccer team that was live-action, and Jungle Kurobe, a rather politically incorrect uh, cartoon short about a Sambo-type jungle boy. And one last thing, and this is very, very important in understanding why the 70s uh, Godzilla films are so radically different, i.e. cheaper, uh, than from those from before. The earlier Godzilla movies were part of double bills with other Toho movies. In other words, Toho produced the films, they distributed them, and they exhibited them in first-run movie theaters that they owned. In other words, they kept almost all the money that these uh, older movies generated. Here, however, Toho was having to share revenue with other production companies, that is, uh, the companies responsible for Panda Copanda and so forth. What that means is that even if they sold the same number of tickets as, say, Destroy All Monsters, Toho was still making less money because they were getting a smaller piece of the pie. This in turn meant that they also had to keep their costs down, way, way, way down. So more and more Toho was relying on overseas sales to put each Godzilla movie in the black, and of course that wasn't going so well either. Well, next I'd like to throw out a theory, and I, I don't think anyone has ever really talked about this before. The reason why Toho stopped making new Godzilla movies between 1975 and 1984. Are you ready? Mickey Mouse and Doraemon. Although Toho continued with its Champion Matsuri releases, new Godzilla movies weren't on the bill. What happened was that Toho had struck a deal with uh, Disney to release their movies in Japan. Toho got the rights, and in March 1976, the Toho champion Matsuri consisted of Disney's Peter Pan and a whole big mess of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck shorts. Over the next few years, Toho released scads of Disney movies, uh, classic movies like uh, Mary Poppins, Cinderella, Lady and the Tramp, Bambi, Pinocchio, and so forth. Uh, and those were during the months that new Kaiju Ega movies had once debuted. 
And beginning in March 1980, the first Doraemon movie, based on the popular manga and anime TV series, also made its debut. Those proved an even bigger success, and pretty much ever since, Toho has distributed Doraemon movies in that same March slot once occupied by Godzilla and company. So yes, Mickey Mouse and Doraemon killed the market, at least for a while, for new Godzilla movies. Well, the movie's cinematographer was Yuzuru Aizawa, a, a favorite of Jun Fukuda's, and also Kihachi Okamoto. Um, he sometimes went by the name Joe because uh, his kanji character for Yuzuru can also be read that way. Anyway, his genre credits also include Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, uh, which frankly is a much better looking movie, uh, as well as The War in Space. What's more interesting, though, is that early in his career, Aizawa was an assistant cameraman on the original 1954 Gojira, and he was the guy behind the camera for all of the underwater scenes. Uh, he turned 87 years old, just as we were getting ready to prepare this commentary, uh, but thanks to his son uh, Tsutomu, we were able to do a short interview. Uh, sadly, he doesn't remember <laughs> anything at all about Godzilla vs. Megalon, but he did share this story about shooting the uh, underwater scenes of Gojira. Quote, I got in the water to operate the camera. The next thing that happened was all of a sudden I wasn't getting any air. I pulled on the lifeline, but no one pulled me up. There was a valve for adjusting the amount of air at the back of the diving suit, and I wondered if, I had, if it had been accidentally shut off. Panicking, I twisted the valve and all of a sudden got this strong gush of air. The force of it made me black out, and when I came to, I was floating on top of the water. There were all these fishermen waiting at the shore who said that if anything went wrong, they would jump in and save me. I was thinking, God damn it, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to tell them I'm going to quit. Uh, but when they pulled me out of the water, everyone was uh, kneeling on the ground, prostrating themselves. I couldn't say anything, and even though I hated the very idea of it, there I was back the next day, back in the water. You know, Steve, uh, Aizawa also shot Akira Kurosawa's uh, wonderful movie, The Bad Sleep Well, in 1960, uh, but no other Kurosawa films after that. Uh, the subject came up during the interview, and he said something very interesting. Uh, quote, Akira Kurosawa liked me and liked my skill, but other cameramen at Toho lied to him, saying that I was talking about him behind his back. As a result, I never worked with him again. Godzilla vs. Megalon, ironically, had one of the most successful theatrical runs of any Godzilla film released in the United States. It was released in the summer of 1976 by CinemaShares International, an indie distributor of mostly exploitation films, and they launched a massive and really effective campaign to get uh, press attention and also to lure kids into the theaters. In order to ensure a G rating from the MPAA, uh, CinemaShares uh, cut out the scene of Rokuro's somewhat violent uh, kidnapping where he gets thrown around in the backseat of the Seatopian's car. And also they cut out uh, a nude centerfold hanging in the cab of the cargo truck. And they cut the two Seatopian agents' death scenes. Uh, they also removed the opening credits. So when the film was released here in 76, it was a few minutes shorter. Not only did this film get a wide theatrical release, but this was the only Toho Godzilla movie to ever get a primetime network television premiere in the United States. On Tuesday, March 15th of 1977, the film was broadcast nationwide at 9 p.m. on the NBC network in a one-hour time slot, which required cutting the film down to 48 minutes to accommodate all the commercial breaks. 
The broadcast was hosted by John Belushi of Saturday Night Live fame, who introduced the film and performed little skits wearing a Godzilla suit. Well, the man who masterminded uh, the exploitation campaign for Godzilla vs. Megalon and who is largely responsible for making the film into the cult classic that it is today is Mel Marin, who was then head of Cinema Shares. And at this time, we're very pleased to welcome Mr. Marin into the studio to talk with us about releasing the film. Mel, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, before we talk about Godzilla vs. Megalon, I want to mention that your relationship with the Godzilla franchise goes all the way back to 1970, when your previous company, Marin Films, distributed Monster Zero and War of the Gargantuas for Hank Saperstein uh, very successfully in the United States. Uh, at the time, the trade paper said that you were taking a big chance because these Japanese monster films were finished at the box office. So what made you want to take a flyer on Godzilla? Well, I yes, I felt the audience, the kids uh, of that era, you know, it, it was an exciting thing, the monster uh, craze, and uh, also the uh, fact that Godzilla, while in, in its early career, Godzilla was feared as a feared monster. And then, of course, the whole image of Godzilla saving the world and saving uh, Japan and the rest of the world, he became a uh, cult hero. So That's it right. was a reversal, and I felt that the, the timing was right uh, for the kids to have a, a hero, and not a Superman, but a monster that they were afraid of before, who is now uh, a friendly monster. Uh, tell us about mounting the release for Godzilla vs. Megalon. Uh, the press called it the single largest opening for an independent film ever held in New York. But even before you took it to New York, you opened in a lot of other cities and you staged all kinds of pub publicity stunts, uh, including a car caravan going through various uh, cities with Godzilla and Megalon cutouts on the cars. Well, we had come up with a gimmick. Uh, we thought that uh, there was an opportunity there. Uh, we contacted the offices, the executive offices of the Beatles, you know, uh, Volkswagen. And we thought that uh, when we opened it in the Charlotte Territory, we thought it would be exciting to do it, create like a circus atmosphere behind Godzilla. And again, as I said, we try to create Godzilla as a friendly monster, not as a monster that the kids feared. And what better way to tying it in with a parade and with the uh, monsters and the in the cars, in the Beetle cars, and uh, it turned out to be, uh, you know, a real pleasant surprise. The box office numbers were terrific, and the response uh, grew, and once you have established a playing field, the uh, bigger cities started to come in and say, oh, wait a minute, let's look at this. This is not just a straight exploitation picture, but we think we can make money on it, and everybody was proven right. The Democratic National Convention was going on when this film hit New York, and you got a lot of publicity for passing out Godzilla for President Buttons and hanging banners all over New York City and, and other stunts. Well, that was just uh, fortuitous. Our uh, publicity department and, uh, uh, saw an opportunity. He thought that this would be a great tie-in. We came up with the idea of running Godzilla for president. Uh, it was not a crazy idea if you consider politics today, <laughs> but that was a, the tie, and it was just fortuitous timing. Well, reading some of the, the old press accounts, I, I must say you, you really went all out. There was a Godzilla footprint in front of Madison Square Garden where the convention was held, and after Jimmy Carter received the presidential nomination, you had six girls in bikinis on the convention floor starting a Godzilla for Vice President campaign. 
Well, the timing is is everything, and the idea was, of course, to keep the Godzilla name in the front of everybody in, in advance of our opening date. So it was just a pre-selling tool, which is done today uh, much uh, further in advance. Uh, the cornerstone of your campaign for this film was the theatrical one-sheet poster showing Godzilla and Megalon uh, fighting on top of the World Trade Center, uh, even though the, mo- the movie takes place in Japan. Uh, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong was coming out later the same year, and everybody was anticipating the climax of that film on, on top of the Trade Center, so you appeared to be stealing a bit of Kong's thunder, uh, a bait and switch. How did that poster come about? Well, again, it was uh, our publicity department and our advertising director came up with the gimmick, you know, that, again, this this would attract... We wanted to have something that would stand out, and he came up with the idea, let's go all the way and uh, uh, put them on top of the uh, building, and uh, a la King Kong originally, but uh, it was just a stroke of uh, publicity genius. How long did Godzilla vs. Megalon remain in the theaters? In in those days, a film like this would typically go from city to city or region to region, as opposed to 5,000 screens on opening day like today. Well, I would gather, um, since there was no immediate rush, first of all, there was no video market, no TV to take advantage, so uh, your money came from the theatrical release, and as long as uh, theaters were able to play it and we were able to... Uh, circulated around the country and again as you pointed out today they'll go with 5,000 screens and films by the end of the fifth or sixth week pretty much have uh, played out you know their entire I I think the figures that have been quoted 93% of the box office gross today comes in the first six weeks of a release Uh, in those days you were in no rush to go any place because your theaters were the prime source of income so as long as uh, the film was producing and as long as we continued to get play dates, uh, we worked it. And I believe the release was, if not a year, was close to nine months, ten months in, in active release. The trade paper said your plan was eventually to put the film into 2,500 theaters. How close did you come to doing that? I think if you'll find out, I think the exact number was about 2,100 or 2,200 screens. How many uh, theatrical prints of Godzilla vs. Megalon did you make? Well, we started with 55 prints, and I believe we wound up with about 300. How much did Cinema Shares pay for the theatrical rights? Do you recall that? Well, I can tell you this, that uh, the uh, amount of advance to Toho was inconsequential. Uh, They knew our relationship with Hank and our reputation of delivering, so their advance was minuscule in comparison to what they wound up with. Somehow you managed to get really good critical reviews for this film from uh, New York Times, Variety, all the the press was positive. You had an unorthodox uh, critic screening that was kind of like a kitty matinee instead of a stuffy premiere. Did the reviews uh, surprise you? Well, we we had hoped, uh, again, when we set up the uh, critic screening, it was not something that you normally did for a, you know, an exploitation film. You didn't give it the treatment, but we felt that uh, they would consider it the same as we did, tongue-in-cheek, and everybody was going to have a good time. So we weren't really afraid of any reviews. Uh, We just felt that uh, everybody was going to take it in in the vein in which it was delivered and that nobody was going to be looking at it askance. And from the technical standpoint, uh, or action, or whatever, we felt that uh, we wouldn't get batted with any reviews. 
1977, Cinema Shares released Godzilla vs. the Bionic Monster, but Universal, which owned the $6 million man, threatened to sue over the use of the word bionic, and you changed the title to Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster. Do you recall that situation? I remember it very well, because I thought it was uh, a ridiculous claim, uh, but uh, uh, valid, you know, the point being that we weren't about to uh, argue or fight over Universal over a Godzilla movie where we felt that we wouldn't have the uh, capacity to win it and and uh, wasn't going to be worth it to us uh, to fight it. Uh, we didn't see any uh, credibility, t- and our attorneys told us uh, we would probably win or prevail, but it just wasn't worth the economic risk. So uh, it was easier to just to change the title at the time. Uh, it was... It was costly because we already had uh, prints made up and campaign made up as Godzilla vs. Bionic Monster. Uh, Anyway, so that that was the story, and we just uh, changed the title, and it it turned out to be a a bad decision because the title did not attract enough people, so... Uh, but again, you didn't need a lawsuit, and it wasn't worth it, and we just decided, as I said, to back off, and uh, it wasn't a big threat, but uh, it was a lawsuit pending that we felt that there was no point in carrying it on. You also released later in 1977 uh, Godzilla on Monster Island, but these last two Godzilla pictures apparently played mostly scattered matinees as opposed to Megalon, which was in first-run theaters. Why didn't they succeed? If I had that answer, Steve, we wouldn't have this conversation. I don't know. I just, uh, I don't know what what the uh, realities are, whether it was a, um, a fact that the Godzilla movies had run its uh, course for the time being. I don't know. Uh, I really don't have an answer for that. As I said, I wish I did. By the way, uh, do you remember the total box office gross for Megalon? I believe the film did about over $5 million. That's impressive. Well, you've released many films over the years. What place does this one hold? Well, first of all, the creative aspects that went into it and the uh, longevity of the theatrical release, the number of places it played, the box office gross, and uh, the national publicity we got from the convention. So I think from that standpoint, it's probably one of the most satisfying uh, releases I was involved with. Well, thanks again for joining us, Mel. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's a very interesting interview, and it's it's certainly ironic that Godzilla vs. Megalon, clearly the worst of the three Godzilla films that uh, CinemaShares uh, released, uh, turned out to be the only successful one. Well, now we're back to the film, and this is the final climactic battle sequence. Uh, the battle is filmed on what appears to be a very big special effects uh, soundstage, as opposed to exterior sets. And, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of miniature work. There are no details like telephone poles or buildings that uh, would have created a sense of scale. So that's, that's really unfortunate. It's interesting, too, looking at the way that the, the, the footage shot for Megalon and the, footage, the stock footage from Godzilla vs. Gigan are, are integrated here. Because, to me, it looks like... Uh, the, the the scenes from Gigan were shot with the camera running faster, i.e., slower motion, than the footage of the, the than the most of the fight footage from Megalon, which is shot at a speed that's uh, closer to normal speed, closer to 24 frames per second. 
And in that regard, I, I, I'd say that um, the style of the new footage is more akin to the way the, the monster battles were shot on the TV shows. Mm, I mean, a, fast, a much faster pace. Much more. faster pace, and also the camera angles. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, it, it, so much is uh, made of, about the, the ton of stock footage in this film, but there's actually a lot of new footage as well, new effects footage. And, I mean, maybe that's unfortunate. I don't know. But this monster battle... Is has got to be the longest or one of the very longest in the entire series. I mean, it just goes on for a... It goes on forever, yeah. Well, see, that's, you know, one of the things. You know, back in the 60s, you usually had these parallel stories going on, like the trying to escape from the assassins who are trying to, to, to kill the princess and, and that kind of thing. And uh, there's none of that here. I mean, there, there's barely any shots at all, even cutting back to the three human characters. So let's talk a little about the monsters in this film and the monster suits. The monsters are, of course, men in costumes, but you knew that already. Uh, the Godzilla design is reasonably true to its uh, predecessors, but the other monsters and Jet Jaguar are closer to what you'd have seen on some of the superhero programs, and that's really no coincidence. Uh, Megalon and Jet Jaguar were designed by... Akihiko Iguchi, uh, also billed sometimes as Akihiko Takahashi, who mainly designed creatures for Tsuburaya Productions uh, TV shows. And he would return to the Godzilla series uh, to design King Caesar and Mechagodzilla in the next film. Well, one thing I can say right off the bat about Godzilla, which is that when we talked to Mr. Nakano recently, uh, I was very surprised by what he said when I asked him about the costume. He said, quote, The Godzilla design was the design taken from the first 1954 Godzilla feature. Well, that's an interesting comment because by this time in history, the original monster suit makers, uh, the men who had designed and built the original Godzilla suit and many of the suits uh, in the 1960s, they had left the studio. And the principal monster suit maker at Toho during this time was Nobuyuki Yasamaru, who came up through the ranks in the special effects department in the late 60s. And he, uh, his first costume that he built was uh, Gorosaurus for King Kong Escapes. This is the first time that Yasamaru designed and built a Godzilla suit because the previous suit, which was made by the old team, was, was created for Destroy All Monsters in 1968 and had been used for a total of four films, which was a series record. Uh, actually, the first time that Yasamaru ever designed Godzilla, it was the Godzilla Tower in uh, Godzilla vs. Gigan. Some people call this the Cookie Monster Godzilla because of the ping-pong ball eyes, which uh, resemble the Sesame Street character. Uh, this was the first suit since Son of Godzilla that was not built to accommodate uh, the monster actor Haruo Nakajima. And Godzilla looks smaller here and less imposing than he usually does. He's actually the shortest of the four characters, the, the three monsters and, and Jet Jaguar. The suit was supposedly made in one week, which is very fast, and it doesn't appear to have been terribly durable. And In at least one shot, you can see rubber scales peeling from Godzilla's head. This Godzilla suit was slightly modified, uh, notably in the, in the facial area, and reused in the next two Godzilla films. And it also appears to have been used on the television show Ryusei Ningen Zone, or Meteor Man Zone, or Zone Fighter, which was produced by Toho in 1973 and featured Godzilla uh, making guest appearances in five episodes. Uh, the show was very much in the Ultraman and Tsuburaya Productions mold, and one of the Godzilla episodes was directed by Ishiro Honda, and three of them by Jun Fukuda. 
In one of the episodes, Godzilla lives in a cave with retractable doors, and in, in another one, his atomic breath was created not uh, with optical animation, as it's usually done, but with this fire extinguisher kind of effect with a mist blowing out of its mouth. According to multiple sources, this isn't the original Gigan suit seen in Godzilla vs. Gigan the year before. Apparently, that suit was so damaged that it had to be replaced. Uh, Gigan was originally designed by the famous manga artist Shigeru Mizuki, whose work is credited with starting the yokai pop culture craze in uh, Japan. Teriyoshi Nakano says that the color scheme of Gigan's body was uh, inspired by the 12-layer kimonos that were worn by ladies of the Japanese imperial court during the 11th century, the, the time of the tale of Genji. Gigan, uh, by the way, is played by Ken Satsuma, who was known then as Kengo Nakayama and who previously had played Hedera and would go on to play Godzilla during the 1980s and 1990s. The Jet Jaguar suit was made from wetsuit material and was reportedly very flammable, so the crew had to be extra careful when they were shooting uh, scenes involving pyrotechnics with it. Nakano says that he was actually initially uh, reluctant to redesign Red Aron into Jet Jaguar because he felt there, there were already too many uh, Ultraman-type characters on, on screen at that time. But he says that he became inspired when he decided, uh, instead of trying to make it attractive, that he would make it unattractive and obnoxious, which may account for the pointy head and the uh, Coupe de Ville grin. And there was also a Jet Jaguar prop that was used in the flying scenes, and that appears to have these abnormally long, outstretched arms. Well, what a difference a monster suit actor makes. Uh, we've said that this is the first Godzilla made after the retirement of Haruo Nakajima, and he's succeeded here by Shinji Takagi, a person that nobody seems to know anything about. Obviously, this performance, uh, this uh, Godzilla performance, was inspired by the type of monster action you'd see on the TV shows at that time, where the monsters did all kinds of crazy things. You can tell from the very beginning that this is a strange performance. When Godzilla reacts to the nuclear bomb in the beginning of the film, he's waving his arms really strangely. And then later, when Jet Jaguar comes to, to get him at Monster Island, Godzilla's standing there with his hands clasped under his chin. And then later, when Godzilla arrives in Japan, he seems to be waving hello as he walks onto the set, onto the battlefield. And he gallops like he's in a potato sack race across the, the land. The bit with the tree, the, uh, there was apparently a scene that was filmed and cut out in which Godzilla uses the tree like a toothpick. And that was supposed to be a nod to a popular television samurai hero, uh, Kogarashi Monjiro. Uh, Nakano says that he instructed the new Godzilla suit actor, uh, Takagi, to adopt movements from no drama, which is graceful and slow. And I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about there when I look at the film. Godzilla's gravity-defying kangaroo kick, there's really not much to say about it. It kind of speaks for itself. So much fun he did it twice. In case anyone's wondering, the stunt actor was inside the costume for at least uh, some of the shots that were used to create this effect. Uh, there are pictures in uh, Japanese books that show the actor hanging on a T-shaped harness that was controlled from the rafters. But again, uh, this is the kind of thing that kids would have expected from their monsters on the, the superhero TV shows of the day like Godzilla slamming an empty Megalon suit against the ground again and again and again. Uh, we haven't talked yet about the score, and the music uh, underscoring this uh, particular scene is as good as any to launch that discussion. It's, it's unusual. Uh, the score for Godzilla vs. Megalon was written by Riichiro Manabe, 
Uh, he's now almost 87 years old, uh, but he very kindly agreed to answer some questions for us. Uh, he turned out to be quite a curmudgeon in his old age. Uh, for instance, when I asked him uh, to compare working for Yoshimitsu Bano, the director of uh, Smog Monster, versus Jun Fukuda, the director of this movie, no comment. Um, about his unusual orchestrations, such as his use of the electric guitar and Jews harp, no comment. But what he did say was, quote, uh, I've worked for ten different studios altogether. Uh, they were all the same. Uh, all film scoring is hard. It's not an easy job. Uh, the composer has to deny himself when writing a film score, so I don't like composing for films. When I asked if he had any favorites among his many scores, he answered, uh, not many. I, I like my early Shochiku stuff, uh, The Sun's Burial, for for example. Unquote. That's a fantastic score, actually. I, I really like his... Uh, the main title theme for that film has uh, sort of a flamenco motif. It's really beautiful. Anyway. Right, and of course that was an early uh, work by the Japanese New Wave director, Nagisa Oshima, uh, one of eight films that they worked on together. He graduated from Tokyo Technical College, then on to the Tokyo School of the Arts. Uh, he transferred majors from voice to music composition, and subsequently, through an introduction uh, by Sei Ikeno, another famous composer, he became a, an ardent uh, fan and follower of Akira Ifukube. Manabe doesn't get a lot of love from Godzilla fans, and that's probably because his Godzilla theme with the blaring trombones is kind of bizarre and, and inappropriate for a monster. But overall, he's an eclectic composer, uh, both in terms of the variety of films he worked on, uh, from art films to Roman porno to sci-fi, to his choice of instrumentation and use of sound effects. Almost his entire score for Godzilla vs. Hedera is memorable, and in this film, there's a wonderful piece called Highway Road on the soundtrack CD uh, that plays briefly when the heroes are driving back from the lake. It's an instrumental piece with solo flute and electric guitar, and it's built around a descending chromatic uh, major chord progression. Very unusual and, and in interesting. The movies he was uh, brought in to compose don't fit the, the mold of the previous Godzilla film, so it's, it's admirable that there was an openness to experimenting with the music. After graduating from school, uh, Manabe went to Italy to understudy with the composer Angelo Francesco Lavagnino, who scored innumerable films, including Orson Welles' version of Othello. Interestingly, uh, Manabe says that he got into film scoring uh, initially because it was a more lucrative career than being a music teacher. Well, we just witnessed uh, Godzilla and Jet Jaguar bidding each other uh, a very emotional goodbye. And then Godzilla turns and, and heads for the horizon. And that's usually the last thing you see, especially in the last couple of films. But here, uh, Jet Jaguar not only gets a hero's welcome, but his own theme song sung by the one and only Masato Shimon, who is famous in Japan for singing a number of uh, superhero show theme songs. It just further confirms that Godzilla is really the sidekick in this film. And it is curious as to why Jet Jaguar's name isn't in the title. Jet Jaguar. This film is almost 40 years old now, and despite all of its shortcomings, one way to measure its uh, success or failure is whether or not it entertains the audience it was intended for. And if you believe, uh, as I do, that this film was made for five-year-olds, then it's an absolute success, because I can tell you uh, anecdotally or personally that my son loves it. And even if this film signaled the impending doom of the original Godzilla series, and even if it somehow 
sullied the reputation of the franchise abroad, here we are all these years later, and it still does what it was supposed to do. And that's its legacy more than anything else, I think. Well, one thing that I'll say in the movie's defense is, you know, I- I'm not particularly fond of... Uh, CGI, and particularly CGI as applied to this genre, and I'm not really much of a fan of the Godzilla movies of the the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s, but on the other hand, Godzilla vs. Megalon, as as weak as it is, it has a kind of charm all its own, and it has um, uh, an organic quality that I think uh, really holds up in, in a lot of ways. Well, it's been our pleasure entirely to talk about this landmark film. In helping us prepare the commentary, we'd like to thank Janice Truting, Blake Crawford, Yukio Nishi, Seiji Okamura, Konomura, Tsutomu and Yuzuru Aizawa, Ryachiro Manabe, Katsuhiko Sasaki, Yutaka Hayashi, Wolf Otsuki, Stefano, and Sadie. Akemi Tasto, Oki Miyano, Toshiro Aoki, Edgar Zucheski, and Shinichi Wukasa. Thanks for listening.